Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today is our 100th episode. Donald Trump has been out in the world doing stuff. We really need to talk about that. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture, politics and ideas. The new issue out this week contains essays by me and Helen on the World Cup and the EU respectively, so do please read us there. Subscribe at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking and get six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. I've got Helen Thompson with me, and uh, she's been with me for a lot of these 100 episodes and has been responsible for most of the good bits. And also Andrew Preston. It's a pleasure to welcome Andrew back. Andrew is a historian of American diplomacy, of American foreign policy, so he is the perfect person to talk us through some of this week's events. Andrew is also, I think I'm allowed to say this, Canadian. You can say that. Uh, I think we outed you last time, actually. (laughs) And I think maybe we can start with that because it is part of what's been going on. So I want to put to you a variant of the question that was asked to Donald Trump at his pretty extraordinary press conference yesterday. So we're speaking on Wednesday morning. One of the journalists said to him, Mr. President, congratulations. And then you called the Canadian Prime Minister very weak and dishonest. And you have just called the, didn't quite put it like this, murderous tyrant, Kim Jong-un, a very talented guy. So, Andrew, how do you feel as a Canadian about that? I mean, it was a weird moment, for sure. And I think a lot of people, not just from Canada, picked up on the weirdness of that moment. It's done Justin Trudeau a world of favours, domestically, politically, because Canadians of all stripes, of all political persuasions, are rallying behind him. And I kind of had that gut reaction, too. I think a lot of Canadians did, that Trudeau was standing up to the bully from the United States and uh, was sort of standing his ground. And he's been in rough shape domestically for the last six or eight months or so. Um, He's nowhere near as popular as he was before. So I think Trump did him some favors. But I think, yeah, a lot of Canadians are kind of baffled by how Trump behaves with his allies and then goes over and, and, and of course, he has to talk with dictators if he's going to get any sort of diplomatic advantage or if he's going to make any progress on on really thorny issues. So talking to Kim is a big deal, but it's not such a big deal to Canadians. When he says a very talented guy, I mean, the weird, you know, there's so many weird bits in that press conference. He does explain himself. So he said, well, he is a talented guy because he inherited this thing at age 26 and it's a tough gig. And you think he said only one in 10,000 people could do this. And he never said what the this was, but the this is kind of killing and murdering and torturing and tyrannizing. (laughs) And I think Trump thinks that that is a talent. I mean, he did used to speak about Justin this way. Um, When they first had that kind of bromance initially and Trudeau was currying favor with Trump and Trump spoke maybe not in quite so glowing terms and Trudeau doesn't have that record that that Kim does, of course. But Trump likes dynamic young leaders. He also likes authoritarian leaders. Trudeau, I don't think, is authoritarian. But what this showed to me is that Trump's foreign policy is it might be nationalistic, it might be imperialistic, but it definitely is narcissistic. And if you scratch a little bit of his ego in the wrong way, as Trudeau did with that press conference, even though he didn't say anything new, but it was the timing of it. it Trump 
as he said in his press conference uh, in Singapore, that Trudeau was, des- you know, almost designed it to make Trump look bad and to humiliate him and also to be sneaky, that Trump came back again and again to this notion that Trudeau thought he was going to give this press conference and Trump would never know about it. But we have TVs on Air Force One. And it's that if you rub him the wrong way, his very fragile ego, then... So during this week, we've had the G7 and then Trump leaves early and flies straight to Singapore. I believe that Trump asked his advisors before the G7, why do I have to do this? This is ridiculous. There's only one important thing happening this week, which is I'm meeting with the leader of North Korea, and I've got to go to Canada, and I've got to talk to this kind of European club. And there were a lot of great photos came out of the G7, the famous one now, which is Trump sitting with his arms folded and Angela Merkel kind of looking baffled and cross and leaning over him and then everyone else sort of crowded around but also the photo of the leaders themselves the sort of group shot and when you look at it it is absurd right it is a completely absurd gathering and there are these pairs so you've got Trudeau and Macron these in their boy band suits the young guys and then you've got May and Merkel both of whom look like they would rather literally be anywhere else on the planet and then you've got uh, Donald Tusk and Jean-Claude Juncker at the edges like bouncers or something then you've got Trump and Abe who are the only two who actually seem to kind of get along in this thing and then our friend Giuseppe Conte who genuinely looked like like everyone else was thinking I'm not totally sure what I'm doing here it's farcical what on earth is the G7 <laughs> there's a literal answer to it obviously which is, is that it came about in March 1973 so pretty much after the Bretton Woods Exchange so it's a post-Nixon shock. Yeah, it's a post-Nixon shock in the spring of 73, so it's before the oil shock of the autumn. But it basically comes about as, in that year, 1973, the post-war international monetary financial energy order is falling apart. And it's, in some sense, nothing more than a talking shop for dealing with a set of problems. Obviously, then, in the late 1990s, it becomes the G8 with Russia's involvement and then Russia's kicked out of it in 2014 after the annexation of Crimea. But I think you can say that there's a set of things that it does in one context as G5 because it didn't include Italy and Canada, I'm pretty sure, for the Platzer Exchange Accord. And then there's the Louvre Exchange Accord, which is a G7 Accord in 1987, where it actually does do some practical things. But otherwise, I think that it's a framework for trying to hold up the idea that there are common interests and potentially common values, but I think that was always a pretty weak argument that grouped together these Western countries that include Japan. And that's where some of the complications of this, I think, arise from, because the one agreement that actually the G7 did that was consequential, the exchange rate one, Louvre Accord in 1987, completely screwed the Japanese over. And you can argue that the Japanese economy has never really recovered from what happened to it then. So... It's got a pretty checkered history before we even get to Donald Trump. So it was created essentially to manage international relations and international finance in a world of floating currencies, a post-Bretton Woods world. But the thing that makes it look so odd now over that 40-year period is maybe it made sense once, but it now has too many Europeans Mm. on it. And then allowing these two representatives of the EU, I mean, that's the thing that made it look farcical, was having Juncker and Tusk there too, It just looks so skewed. So Trump then, I think understandably, given his view of the world, sees it as a kind of European stitch-up. And he thinks that the Europeans are screwing the Americans over anyway. So isn't it understandable that he would look at this club and think it's a joke? 
I'm a little bit hesitant to start, you know, saying that I agree with the Donald Trump view of the world. <laughs> you have to agree with his view of the world to think that there's something but really there's something, odd about this I think there's something particular very, gathering. I think there's something very hollow about it. And I think that that goes actually beyond having these two European Union presidents in their different capacities there. And I think if you say, well, why is this situation come about? It is because Trump really doesn't take the European Union seriously. And he thinks that you can push quite hard against it, to use the language he uses in other contexts, maximum pressure, and things will happen. And he wants maximum pressure, particularly on Germany, about trade, about Nord Stream, collectively for the EU as a whole, about Iran. And I think that he will get some of what he wants. Not least because I think that the Germans will prioritise Nord Stream over the other issues. So the, the spat with Canada is a kind of sideshow in that sense? This is actually about... Trump and Europe? Well, Canada, if I remember correctly, Canada was brought into the G7 to counterbalance Europe, to bring in sort of a partner for the United States, even though Canada a lot of times does side with Europe against the US and did during the Cold War. But the G7 itself, the G5, the G7, whatever it is, it was definitely post Bretton Woods, but it's also an artifact of the Cold War. They were the biggest capitalist economies at the time. And just like NATO, it kind of serves a purpose still, but the purpose with each passing year becomes less and less clear. And I think that's what Donald Trump hits upon. That's his whole part of his whole foreign policy is that these things that may have made sense at one point in the Cold War don't really make sense anymore. And it does look odd when you have a grouping of some of the world's big economies and it doesn't include China or India. But then if you include those countries, then then what's the point of it? So can I read you, um, this was a someone who's got a connection to the Trump campaign, I think, I don't think he's connected to the administration, but it was on Fox News. And this person said, a better path now would be to recognise that the G7 has outlived its purpose. An improved global financial grouping would involve the United States, Japan, India, Germany, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, United Arab Emirates. Countries with real money, interesting phrase, and the will to tackle strategic issues in a capitalist framework. I mean, that's a really weird list. On the other hand, it's true. They do have real money. I mean, we talked about it often enough. The Gulf states they do have matter real... a lot. The thing that's really odd in that sentence is the idea that Germany has got some strategic will to deal with these questions because... And of course, Britain and France are not in that list. The two European countries that do still have some military capability. I mean, I think the core of the reason why Trump can push as hard at the European Union, as he is able to do, is, is because of Germany's position, is, is because Germany is the dominant state within the European Union, yet it has pretty much zero military power. It has a military that's essentially failing, and it doesn't have a strategic political culture. I mean, and he's got that NATO threat hanging yeah. over this. I mean, that's the background yeah. thing, as Andrew was saying. These things are connected, and the real fear, especially, and we'll come on to whether Trump may be feeling in, particularly empowered at the moment, is that he follows through on his NATO rhetoric. Well, I think that, I mean, I should have added that in the list of things I would say about Germany's choices, because I think you can already see in what Merkel said since she's come back from Canada, that that's the first thing that she thinks has got to be addressed. Now, she also thinks that she's very domestically constrained on Germany's military budget. And I think you can see this in a whole host of things and the predicaments facing the European countries and indeed the Canadian government goes back to the point that Andrew made at the beginning about Trudeau they're caught between on the one hand being anti-Trump and sort of saying we're going to stand as the defenders of the western values and rule-based order etc etc goes down very well with domestic electorates but on the other hand it's a hopeless way of proceeding 
in the way in which the geopolitical world is now working at the moment. And actually, domestic political constraints pose a really serious so problem. It's ho- so just say it's hopeless because... It's hopeless because states have to make a choice between the things that they need domestic consent for and the geopolitical choices that they make. And I think you can see a number of, of problems that Western countries have faced in those terms. I mean, Britain over Brexit is, is what do you prioritise? The absence of democratic consent to Britain's membership of the European Union or the geopolitical predicaments that Britain faces as an island off Europe in a changing world. If you're Donald Trump, this would have been true if it being Hillary Clinton as well, you're trying to do a pivot to Asia strategy like Obama did. It involves the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is supposed to exclude China and as a way of dealing with rising China, but you don't have domestic consent to that trade agreement. Now, Trump then chose to abandon the trade agreement, as Hillary Clinton actually may have done as well, but you're still left with what is then your strategy in East Asia towards China. And I think that you can understand quite a lot of these predicaments. I mean, Merkel's in terms of, she understands that Germany needs to spend more money on defence, but there's no domestic consent in Germany to spending more money. (laughs) What the way out of any of these predicaments are, it's not at all clear, but I think that the risk for the the G6, as they now like to think of themselves, or at least some commentators like to think of themselves, is as they double down on the attacking the United States under Trump for domestic reasons and not see what the geopolitical consequences of that are likely to be and not understand what their weaknesses are. And the European Union has got a weakness. And it should be said the one person who hasn't done that is Theresa May. Well, she clearly... I mean, she's, she's got other things she's to got, worry she's, about. She's got the, the sharp end of it where Brexit's concerned. And I think that you can see even her predicaments in those terms because she has eschewed attacking Trump that much, though she doesn't seem to have got a great deal of benefit from it in terms of her personal relationship. No, he didn't even mention her in his no. various tweets yeah. as though she wasn't there. But at the same time, her version of it at the moment, I think, is is that she has a facing a parliament that actually wants to prioritise Britain's relations with Europe regardless of how that is constructed in some sense, whether it's in or out of the European Union, make it look like the same thing. And yet she understands that the whole freedom of movement issue and the domestic consent to that puts a really important and sharp constraint on what can be accepted domestically. We'll need to come back to Brexit. Can I just jump in on that? I think that's a really shrewd analysis. What Theresa May also showed right when Trump came into power is the other side of that dilemma or the other sharp edges of dealing with the United States, where if you... If you're seen to curry favor with Trump and if you're seen to cozy up to him, as, as Theresa May did is right away, I mean, scurrying to Washington in that hand-holding moment, that that is damaging as well domestically. So, Andrew, as a historian of American foreign and diplomatic activities over its long history, there was sort of shock and outrage that an American president could behave like this, the disdain, the contempt, allies being treated as though they were enemies, and an assumption that America's job in the world is to hold these alliances together. But in the long sweep of American history, is this such an outlier? I mean, to have a president who doesn't see the world like that? No, not at all. And in fact, the United States is the glue that's binding the West together really only dates to the Second World War and what the post-war settlement that came out of the ashes of the Second World War. But even during the Cold War and even after the Cold War, American presidents would have incredibly tense relations with allies, sometimes because of the same dynamics where allies had this painful choice that Helen talked about between getting caught on one hand by their own domestic political opinion and then what the United States needed or felt it needed from its allies. And this isn't this old Trump-Trudeau fiasco or argument 
isn't even the worst incident like that between an American president and a Canadian prime minister during the Vietnam War when the Johnson administration, Lyndon Johnson, was adamant that it wanted more support from its allies, even if they weren't going to send troops. Johnson wanted more diplomatic support, more political support. And in 1965, the Canadian Prime Minister, Lester Pearson, who had won the Nobel Peace Prize for helping to solve the Middle East crisis in the late 50s after Suez, um, when he was Canadian Foreign Minister, Pearson was receiving an honorary degree from Temple University in Philadelphia. And Pearson went down, gave a speech that was rightly considered by Johnson to be an anti-Vietnam War speech, just as the war in Vietnam was really escalating. Pearson was criticizing especially the bombing, the U.S. bombing of North Vietnam. And Johnson demanded that Pearson then go down to Camp David, and Johnson would meet him at Camp David to discuss these issues. And Pearson was bracing himself for a tough meeting, but he was bracing himself for a meeting. And when he got there, Johnson grabbed him by the lapels of of Pearson's coat and shook him and said, "Uh, don't you come down here and piss on my rug. Now, that was in but private. He didn't tweet it. <laughs> he didn't. That's the thing, is that now it gets when tweeted we, right away. When did and, we find well, out? Well, we didn't that's find that out la- much later. Did you discover memoirs. that in the archives? It, it was in the memoirs of a Canadian so diplomat who was there. It wasn't known by at the, the time. public. That's right. Nobody what knew about it What did people think happened at the meeting? They came out and said, we exchanged our views. I'd love seeing my friend Mike, because that was Lester Pearson's nickname, and that sort of thing. It all looked good on the surface. But now, be- because of Trump, but also because of social media, these things get picked up right away. And then they influence diplomacy. So things that shouldn't become this sort of crisis of Canadian-American relations or or Anglo-American relations or whatever get magnified out of all proportion. I think the comparison with what Trump's done and showing actually that he's pushing against something hollow as opposed to ripping something up that's real is actually the Nixon comparison. Mm -hmm. Because Nixon, over the course of a weekend, ripped up the basis of the fixed exchange rate regime, I should say, dollar-gold convertibility of the post-war international monetary order and he preceded that by ripping up the basis of Japan's security by his turn towards China and he gave the Japanese 24 hours notice as to what he was doing that he was going to China to meet Mao. Now the international monetary order and the security relations in East Asia were more real things than the supposedly rules-based international trading order that wasn't actually put in place in a institutionalized sense until 1994 with the creation of the World Trade Organization. So I think that Trump is in some sense calling out something that isn't really there any longer and he's doing it in a pretty rude and aggressive way but there's much less to be ripped up whereas Nixon really was ripping up something that was the basis of the way in which the West had constructed its monetary relations with each other and and the basis of the United States security position in East Asia in a very, very short period of time. And then, Not just in East Asia too, though, but around, that's absolutely yeah. right. I mean, the pressures were the same. The things that Donald Trump complains about yeah. now were true in the 60s and 70s as well, where the US was basically underwriting European and Japanese security and allowing the, especially the German and Japanese economies to boom. Meanwhile, those economies are then putting pressure on American gold reserves. France began putting pressure on American gold reserves. And the whole system just couldn't sustain itself. It couldn't continue like that. And Trump is complaining about a similar kind of thing today. These things sort of outlast the Cold War. And now we're at a situation where Trump is saying, well, what, what's the point of having these relations anymore? So is the difference that the Nixon shock rupture was a much more substantive rupture, but it was dressed up in public in a way that underplayed it? And what we have now is a president who overplays literally everything. And it may be that some of what he's overplaying is not nearly as significant. 
It's possible. I'm not sure how much the Nixon shot was dressed up in that. Uh, Did the politicians genuinely call each other out in this way? No. I mean, in a way, not, they not were, in a Trumpian the, way. No, and no. the stakes were too high. I mean, this was the Cold War as well. I'm not sure about this because what Nixon was doing on the security side of it was basically rewriting the rules of the Cold War at the same time because it was basically creating the conditions for the pursuit of détente. It was basically trying to divide China and the Soviet Union from each other. And one way you might tell this story of where we now are is the fact that that has failed. You know, if that was the basis of the second half of the Cold War the, from the détente to the end, then what we've seen, particularly the last four or five years, is a resurgence of a of a Russia-China axis. And then the predicament then for the United States is how to contain that. And the answer is it's not very well at the moment. So that does get us on to the next thing. Just one last thing, as you were speaking, it is, of course, true in the 60s. Anyway, de Gaulle was pretty blunt about these things. I mean, de Gaulle didn't dress it up. No, he held press conferences and said, basically, you know, I want gold for my dollars. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Andrew, you wrote a piece in the New Republic before the Trump-Kim summit where you took us through some summits of the past and asked the, the real question, which of these models are we likely to see? And very, very different kinds of both events and outcomes famous ones um kennedy khrushchev um and before that eisenhower khrushchev as helen was just alluding to there nixon in china reagan gorbachev now that it's happened which one do you think it was well it definitely wasn't any of the khrushchev summits uh which ended in disaster and a lot of acrimony I mean, it's a cliche to say now, I think, but it, this is very much a, a Nixon goes to China type moment for Trump. In 1972, when Nixon went to China, they didn't come to a lot of concrete agreements. The importance of the occasion was the occasion itself. Nixon going to China, shaking Mao's hand, shaking Zhou Enlai's hand. In 1954, John Foster Dulles had refused to shake Zhou Enlai's hand at a summit in Geneva, at a multilateral summit in Geneva, and that really bug the Chinese for a long time, as it rightly would. So it was the appearance of Nixon going and making peace with a very old enemy, an enemy whom Nixon had vilified himself as a politician for, for well over a decade. And I think that's what we see with Trump and Kim, where nothing concrete, people are complaining that they haven't agreed to anything concrete, but sometimes that doesn't matter. That didn't matter with Reagan and Gorbachev in 1985 either. It's just about establishing a relationship. Now, who knows where this will go? I mean, it could end in tears and one month, six months, 12 months. I think anyone who is predicting what's going to happen hasn't been paying attention to Donald Trump because he's thoroughly unpredictable, whether you love him or loathe him. And you said, and it connects to what Helen was just saying, that in the long run, not in the short run, China was the winner from... Absolutely. I mean, it looked initially like Nixon had pulled off some great coup, some great achievement. But when you play it out over decades, the world order that we live in now, with China as the rising, potentially in future dominant power, can be traced back to that moment. Absolutely. It was a, a week that changed the world when Nixon went to China for that very reason. But Nixon at the time, he didn't get 
most of the short-term things that he wanted. He wanted China's help in ending the Vietnam War. That didn't happen. Over the long haul, he wanted to contain the Soviet Union. But he was also embarking, as Helen said, on detente with the Soviet Union at exactly the same time. There are real questions as to the extent to which Nixon needed China in order to embark on detente with the Soviet Union. So Nixon and Kissinger set up this really elaborate architecture that is impressive in a lot of senses. There's no, there's no question about it. But what did it actually achieve, either in the short term or the long term? It brought China, as Nixon said, back into the family of nations, which I think everyone should agree is a good thing. But just how much did the U.S. actually benefit from that? There's a big uh, question mark over that. I think that the the issue with the summits is quite difficult to find some comparison with because it's a very unusual summit in this respect. You have the you know the world's leading power with rather small power that happens to have nuclear weapons. A small and one of the poorest countries yeah. in the yeah. world. I mean, this country is broke beyond yeah. all measures. So. I mean, I think at the core of this lies the issue then of nuclear proliferation. Is is it like, why is it that the leader of North Korea can have this kind of massively high-profile summit with the world's leading power? Now, part of it, you could argue, is, is because actually underneath all this, it's actually really still about the US and China, and that actually this yeah, is a, yeah. a way in which the administration in Washington, and I'm not saying this is just down to Trump uh, at all, is trying to deal with its China issues and it is using North Korea as a way of putting more pressure on China and saying, you will sort this out, otherwise we will get much more confrontational with you about trade and other matters. But I think it makes it quite hard to read where this might go, not just for the reasons that Andrew said, none of us should predict where this might go, but there isn't really a precedent to look upon because in some sense what North Korea's got is some, not legitimacy, that's the wrong, the, the wrong way of thinking about it, but it shows that actually if you get nuclear weapons at least you turn yourself into a regional nuclear power, then you get to play on the world stage. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is a precedent, and it's not in terms of summits. What struck me is that basically what Trump has done in going to North Korea is agree to something that looks a lot like Obama's Iran deal, that North Korea is going to denuclearize for not really any concessions or trade-offs on its other behavior, which of course is why Trump criticized Obama's Iran deal. And I go back to my point about Trump's foreign policy being all about Trump, this narcissistic foreign policy. He just wants to undo what Obama did and what George W. Bush did before him and embark on his own relationships. Because if the Iran deal is the worst deal in history, now we don't know what the North Korea deal, if there is going to be a deal, what what it's exactly going to look like. But right now, at his press conference, he seemed to be indicating that it would look something like the Iran deal, where it was just about nuclear weapons. And then when people kept asking him about human rights, he would say, well, all that will follow. I don't see how it can't follow once we have a relationship on nuclear weapons. Because the other thing it's about is about trade and money. And I think Trump assumes, and he said it more than once, that what North Korea really needs is an injection of cash. Mm. And then it does and I'm sure this is true, it does have the potential, actually, and there are already signs of it in the way that the North Koreans are behaving, to marketise quite quickly. And, you know, the South is there, South Korea, one of the most successful economies in the world. And that that's what will follow. But the thing I was really struck by in the press conference, thinking about Nixon in China, you know, the phrase Nixon in China is used to suggest there are certain things that only certain kinds of politicians can do because you have to kind of cross a partisan divide and bring your people with you Nixon was the only one who could do it because he had been a hawk. Now, I don't think Trump's the only one who could do this because he'd been a hawk on North Korea, because everyone's been a hawk on North Korea. 
Trump's anyone could do this because he's a narcissist. Because I can't think of any other president for whom the human rights issue wouldn't just stick in their throat. I mean, this is an absolutely monstrous regime. And he began that press conference with someone asking him about Otto Wumbia. And he immediately, again, but being Trump, he never shirks it. He comes straight in and says, wonderful guy, wonderful parents, great tragedy. He didn't die in vain. His death led to this. I just can't imagine any other president being able to say that it's just so this is you know trump in career is not nixon in china because he was a hawk it's no one else could have done this and get away with it too because he said so many other things that you're scrambling to keep up with all the things trump says and then he'll say something that is also really shocking but you forget about it because of all the other shocking things that he said you know i'm not i'm not entirely convinced that no one else could have done it. No, nobody else could have done it. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I agree with you. Be- because I don't see why Obama couldn't yeah. have done this. Well, he went to Cuba and dealt with Iran. Yeah. So. But he couldn't have sucked up the human rights. Well, he sucked up to Iran, which is a genocidal regime, and it's rhetoric, at least, to Israel. I mean, <laughs> I'm not really sure where the... And Cuba, too. I mean, Obama was quite rightly, you know, the Castro regime. I, I'm not a big fan of the sanctions. I think it's been a, one of America's biggest foreign policy mistakes over the last 40 years. But there are serious human rights issues in Cuba. And Obama didn't brush them aside as Trump did. But he he dealt with them. But he dealt with them in a way that didn't really directly address them. I mean, maybe then what I'm thinking of here is that it just does really come across with Trump, along with the narcissism, that money is a more significant measure of human worth than anything. Hotels. Yeah. yeah. I think that and, and that it gives a different flavour to this. He kind of, there's a conviction to what he's doing here because he genuinely doesn't care about the human rights, I think. Going back to China, to some, a point that Helen made, a lot of commentators are saying that really Trump has played into China's hands and that he's going to ease a lot of the pressure on North Korea and North Korea will open up its economy a little bit in a sort of Chinese-style way with political authoritarianism, but moving towards more of a free market and leaving aside human rights and having still a, a dictatorial regime in Pyongyang, even though it's starting to make money and build hotels on nice beaches and that sort of thing. And I don't think Trump would see it that way. I think he'd have no problem with that. If, he's, if you still had a dictator in North Korea, if you still had this brutal regime that was still opening up to the world in a way China had with fancy hotels. I think we shouldn't get too carried away with the idea of how distinctive Trump is on this issue because you know, American presidents have long been pretty indifferent to human rights in any number of the regimes that they've either supported or moved towards um, reaching agreements with. I mean, Mao's China was, I mean, it was one of the, you know, the most hideous regimes of the 20th century and China's turn towards economic openness didn't come until after Mao's death. So at the point in which Nixon was doing that, there's no clear path that leads to China's integration into the international economy. I think if you looked at it in trying to step back from Trump and say, well, what might be in it for the United States in geopolitical terms of something changing in North Korea in economic terms, it would be that if you have a, a state right up against China's border that has got some economic dependency on the United States, that has got certain advantages for the United States. And it particularly does at a time when China is trying to orientate its relationship with the world through Eurasia, then you keep it occupied with a political problem on its border. So I don't think we should just think about this in terms of Trump's narcissism, which is uncertainly part of who Trump is, but there are actual American interests at play here too. And also, I think that if you look at some of the arguments that have been made by the people who've been advising Trump, including Kissinger, it must be said, who goes back to advising Nixon about about it. And as far as I can see that Kissinger's been particularly 
influential on Trump about the North Korea issue. There may be more strategy here to it than it looks. And Kissinger, of course, was someone who could do the human rights thing without it sticking in his craw. My favourite moment in the press conference was when he paid Trump paid tribute to the South Koreans and the sort of Olympics diplomacy where they brought North Korea in. And the way he phrased it was, it was this failing event. They weren't selling tickets. And then they invited the North Koreans and the tickets just sold out. It is almost, he has a selling tickets view of it. I, I agree with Helen. Of course, there are really serious-minded and quite hard-nosed people who are constructing a policy around this. But I do think the man at the heart of it is unique, actually, in the way he sees the world relative to other American presidents. I do think, who knows, but everything that he says suggests to me that there is a quite unusual view of things at the heart of this. I think there's something unusual and singular about his style, and certainly in the way in which he he talks. There's a bit in the press conference where he basically says, look, I might have got this wrong. In six months' time, I might be coming up here and, and saying that. And then he realises, no, I won't actually say that. I'll find some excuse for saying that, which is exactly what politicians do, because they, you know... Well, it's what they think, but well, they don't exactly, normally say that's it. That's what I mean, is, 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 is they know that they might get things wrong, but they find an excuse. And what Trump does, he, he kind of blurts out in public the ways in which politicians are more likely to think in, in practice. And that certainly sets him apart. But the point in which I think which he's, he's different, uh, certainly from anybody else among Western politicians, and I think that his relationship to past American presidents is more complicated, is he simply does not believe in any way the stories that liberals have told about the way the world works for the last 20 or 30 years. And he, he doesn't mind saying that. And he it's very instinctive the way he reacts against it. But he still basically says... There's nothing there to these liberal stories. And not just liberal stories, but I think that's right, but also conservative stories. Yeah. A lot of Republicans are tearing their yeah. hair out about human rights or about the international order or about the decline of the West. Yeah. This is, or uh, NATO. Or NATO yeah. or all sorts of things that are, that are driving the John McCain wing of the Republican Party crazy, as well as liberal internationalists yeah. like Hillary Clinton. And this is something about Trump's politics that sort of loops back on some issues in some strange way where he sounds more like Bernie Sanders than he does you know, the blob, the foreign policy blob in Washington. So can I do one more historical comparison? We talked to Bridget Kendall on this podcast a few months ago about Russia, but also at the end, we speculated ahead to what might happen at the Trump-Kim summit. And I happened to see her yesterday. I asked her about this and she remembered one of the ones, Andrew, that you talked about. There were the two, weren't there? Reagan, Gorbachev meetings, 85 and 86. But as a journalist covering those, she remembered at the time things that seemed to foreshadow some of what's going on now, including that was about nuclear weapons, a lot of it, and journalists kind of saying, where's the detail? Where's the verification? Where's the evidence? I mean, Reagan, who at the time seemed like this guy who a lot of people still believe was out of his depth, facing this evil empire, as he'd called it, these people who seemed much more ruthless than him, and Reagan believing that a certain personal chemistry could achieve a lot that verification treaties never could and the journalists being really unconvinced by that view and of course they were wrong and he was right and this may be a bit like that i hope so because if you look at how it played out with reagan and gorbachev that well it didn't end in, a, in very well for gorbachev but i think it ended very well for cold war tensions and avoiding world war three and of course just to go back to alan's point 
this is not like that because we're talking about a very very powerful state and a very 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 weak state that happens to have nuclear weapons and that was something different yeah in terms of the power dynamics between the two states but if we're thinking about tensions between two states both of which have nuclear weapons north korea punches well above its weight because of its situation because of you know obviously where it is regionally and what it means for south korea and japan and china this is a hugely important relationship it's not just a relationship between an extremely poor fourth world country and the most powerful country in the world and the richest country in the world. This is this is really important and hopefully it will end in a way like Reagan and Gorbachev, but Kim will do everything he can not to be Gorbachev, not to see his regime dissolve, not to lose power. The other thing about Trump, it seems that he has concentrated policymaking not just to himself but also to Mike Pompeo in a way that Nixon did with Kissinger, but also that Reagan did with Schultz. So we forget that Reagan went against the advice of a lot of people in his own administration, especially Caspar Weinberger, but also his NSC, who said, you cannot legitimate this communist dictator. You, you're just going and not getting solid, verifiable agreements from Gorbachev and from the Kremlin means that we're legitimizing them and we're failing in our foreign policy. As people are saying now, like exactly. everyone's saying, exactly. was it win-win or was it actually just a right. Korean win? Right. And what Reagan wanted to do and what I think Trump wants to do is begin a process that is going to lead somewhere. But Kim will look at history as well, and he'll look at Gorbachev and not want to be Gorbachev. He'll want to be Mao, uh, and that's what Trump has to guard against. And I'm not sure Trump's foreign policy of instinct of going along and just listening to Mike Pompeo, which seems to be the case, uh, although I'm glad he's not listening to John Bolton. I'm really glad. And I'm also glad he's not listening to Mike Pence. We'll just have to see where that leads, because it's, he's unpredictable, but the situation is unpredictable, and you combine all those unpredictabilities... Who knows where we're going to go? So can we finish with Trump? Because it is about him. I mean, this week has been incredible, really. We're getting used to a world in which not only is he the most famous human being on the planet, but he eats up the headspace of most of the other human beings on the planet. And then this week, he has just sort of sucked up all the oxygen in the world, and it's become his world, and we live in it. And the press conference, so you watched it, Andrew, mm-hmm. right? Did you? You just read the transcript. Yeah, and I just read the transcript. It's different reading it, but it still was an amazing thing. So there was one moment where he's, I think he says, I haven't slept for 25 hours. And um, even reading it, you have that thought, well, someone needs to put him to bed soon. Because (laughs) um, this could really spiral out of control. He was enjoying it, right? He was definitely reveling in it. And I I loved seeing how some of the journalists tried to preface their questions with congratulations. Congratulations, Mr. President. And others went straight in and neither worked. In a way, you never still got a straight answer. Presumably, he will um, feel vindicated. And the fact that Democrats are screaming doesn't bother him at all. The fact that Republicans are attacking him doesn't bother him at all. He will feel vindicated. He's unpredictable. He's not sleeping a lot. He's tweeting a lot. Where does this go now? And I also assume that we will see, you never know, but his approval ratings tick up quite significantly. They already are. They already are. He'd gone from like a 20-point gap in his approval ratings to a 10-point gap. But we may be about to enter the phase where he gets favourable ratings, net plus ratings. What does he do with the political capital he seems to have got out of this week? And also the sequencing was right for him, G7 first, summit second. It would have been very different if it had been the other way around. Should we feel that Trump 2.0 is coming? I think the thing that he, he would like to do with it, or at least he would seem he would like to do with it, is is to move towards better relations with Russia. Because obviously one of the other things that he suggested at the G7 and some of was to go back to being a G8 and actually actually get rid of some of them. (laughs) Go back to being a a G8. And it was was interesting that Conte seemed quite keen on that until he got slapped down by the the other Europeans. And you can see, I think, in the ways in which 
again, Merkel's reacted to what's happened, this question of like, how are the European Union states going to potentially divide between at this moment now wanting to move towards better relations with Russia or are they going to side with America? But that kind of presumes on her version of it that Trump isn't himself trying to get towards better relations um, with Russia. I think the difficulty for Trump is the way in which he's been fundamentally constrained since the beginning and has obviously caused so many competence problems for his administration that each time he has tried to move towards better relations with Russia, there's been a severe domestic backlash against it and the Mueller investigation <laughs> tightens the noose around it. Now, I would say that the reason why we've got the Trump that we've got at the moment is because he got himself back on the front foot, really from the moment in which Andrew McCabe, the deputy director of the FBI, was fired, because the narrative that the Russian collusion was largely a function of a conspiracy, to want of a better word, between the Department of Justice and the FBI to try to neutralise him was something that was not substantiated fully by what had happened, but McCabe's exit from the FBI suggested that was something in this, and so he's got on the front foot. But he's got on the front foot before, only to find that the Mueller investigation puts him back on the back foot again. And once the Mueller investigation's right round his neck, then he can't have any freedom from manoeuvre on Russia. That was already demonstrated by what happened last summer where Congress ended up putting those sanctions on essentially against his will on Russia. It's impossible to predict what Trump is going to do. And I've been wrong so many times that I'm, I don't have a whole lot of credibility on reading Donald Trump. But um, just to pick up on something Helen said, one thing is for sure is that Robert Mueller is going to determine to a large extent what Donald Trump can and can't do just as the Watergate investigation ended up determining what Nixon, determining his future and what Nixon could and couldn't do, even as Nixon was embarking on these incredible diplomatic initiatives, the opening to China, detente with the Soviet Union, ending the Vietnam War, all unfolding at the same time that the Watergate investigation was unfolding. And none of those foreign policy achievements could save Nixon from Watergate. The same might happen. We don't know what Mueller's found, and we don't know what he's going to find, and we don't know what he's going to decide. But that will determine Trump's foreign policy. And then China will determine Trump's foreign policy, much more than Russia will, I think, no matter what Trump wants to do about Russia. This relationship between China and the United States will really shape not only what happens in North Korea, um, and of course, with South Korea and Japan, but in Europe and elsewhere. And it, again, in the press conference, it was striking that I think three or four times he went out of his way to praise Xi Jinping in similar terms to the way he talked about Kim. So very personal. He's a friend. He kept saying he's a friend of mine. He's a personal friend of mine. That's very Trumpian too. Exactly. To see diplomacy. I mean, a lot of leaders see diplomacy in, in those personal terms. George Bush Sr. did. So did George W. Bush. It's personal for Trump. But I'm not sure that he feels any true affinity or any kind of true personal connection other than the power that these leaders hold. And that's the thing. And I don't think he sees someone like Justin Trudeau as having all that much power. Therefore, you can you can push him around. And one of the ironies of this it is clear that Trump's view of the world, he doesn't make a distinction between elected and unelected leaders. Right. He, unless he's burying it deep down, that doesn't seem to register. And yet, the American midterm elections are probably the most important event coming up for global geopolitics, potentially. And for Trump's own future. Yeah. I'm not sure about the most important event for global geopolitics. I suspect that that event will be whatever's happening in, in China. Okay, so the most important event that we can predict. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about democracies, unlike other regimes, is they have regular moments that are fixed in the calendar 
where important changes take place. Of course, at some point, something's going to happen in China that will turn out to be the decisive event, but we can't say it's going to happen on a particular date in November. But I think this goes back to the question of how much of what is happening at the moment is Trump is actually really influential in and how much Trump is a, a symptom of. Now, I do think that Trump being constrained, particularly on Russia, does make a difference and the midterm elections will make a difference to that um, question, just like Mueller's investigation will make a difference. But some of these issues will keep playing themselves out regardless of, you know, like it's in the White House. If we go back to where we started, you know, we've heard a lot this week about Trump's lack of interest in, in Europe. Well, Obama's foreign policy obviously expressed in a very different language from 2011 onwards was to prioritise Asia over Europe. That was what the pivot to Asia was about. More of the American Navy was put into the Pacific, concentrated on the Trans-Pacific Partnership more than a trade agreement with the European Union. That was supposed to exclude China from it. It didn't particularly work, and one of the consequences of it, I think, has been China's response, which has been you know, the one belt, one road of moving away from the Pacific towards Eurasia and the growing China-Russia axis. But the weakness of the European position in relation to the United States is something that's going to outlast Trump. And it is also true, I think, just to end with one final historical comparison, that these summits, their successes and their failures don't really factor into how people vote. And my favourite example of that is always the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's not a summit, but when Kennedy saved the world from destruction, which he sort of did with Khrushchev, it was about 10 days before the midterm elections. So you've got a president who has just saved everyone's lives. He may have endangered their lives first, but then he saved their lives. And people didn't factor that in at all in how they voted. He lost seats in both houses. And when political scientists tried to work out afterwards what had mainly influence how people voted, it was grain prices. Where foreign policy can be a factor is it can burnish an image or it can tarnish an image. So it can make someone like Gerald Ford look incompetent and hapless. It can make Jimmy Carter look incompetent and hapless, even if people don't know the intricacies of arms control negotiations. Or it can make someone look strong and statesmanlike. And that actually might help the Republicans in November. And it might help Republican candidates of a certain Trumpian character in November. And I think Democrats, I've been feeling this way for a couple of months now, that Democrats who are talking about a blue wave in November are presuming way too much, not only because it's so soon before the midterms, but because I'm not sure that the Democratic momentum behind the Democrats is as solid as they think it is. And I think the longer the Mueller investigation goes on, the more fed up Americans are getting with a lot of Americans, not everyone, of course, the more Democrats talk about impeachment, it seems like they're seeing impeachment not as a process because of wrongdoings, but as something that they were always determined to do. Even though I think Mueller, I think there is stuff there. There's not just smoke, there's actual fire. But there's a kind of investigation fatigue, a scandal fatigue. And if Trump can, he already has pulled off something with North Korea, if he can continue that, he's going to look statesmanlike and this could help the Republicans, and they may not lose Congress in November. I think foreign policy, though, is going to increasingly matter in the elections in the West, because it can't not, because foreign policy is going to be an increasing part of the way the world turns out. And what people who've listened to some, or maybe all of our 100 episodes would know, is that when we predict the outcomes of elections, <laughs> um, we're not always right. We'll tweet the link at tppodcast underscore to Andrew's article, also to the episode that we did with Bridget Kendall talking about Russia and looking ahead to the summit. 
If you'd like to share Talking Politics with people you think might enjoy it, do point them to our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com, where we've got a new page which lists our most popular episodes. We've done 100. We are now going to branch out and do some new things, including we're going to find a way to let listeners join in, record questions that we can then respond to. We recorded an interview with Andrew O'Hagan about Grenfell last week. Today is the first anniversary of the Grenfell Tower fire. It's a day for commemoration and remembrance it's probably not a day for cool analysis we will be putting that interview out next week the essay on which it's based is available at the lrb lrb lrb.co.uk my name is david runciman and we've been talking politics ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs>